In this episode of Trek End Time, we're going to talk about how we should fear the walking Vulcans. That's right, we're talking about <laughs> Enterprise, episode five of season three, Impulse, which dropped on October 8th, 2003. Hey everybody, welcome to Trek End Time. I'm sure you know where you are by now, but I'm going to say all this anyway. Here at Trek End Time, we watch each and every episode of Star Trek in chronological order. And we also talk about how things were in our world at the time of the original broadcast. So we're currently in season three of Enterprise. And that means we're in 2003 in our world. And who are we? Well, I'm Sean Farrell. I'm a writer. I write some sci-fi. I write some stuff for kids. I write some stuff for adults. And with me is my brother, Matt who is the guru and inquisitor behind the YouTube channel, Undecided with Matt Farrell, which takes a look at emerging tech and its impact on our lives. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Last week, we had a pretty big gap in our opinions about the show. Yeah. And I'm sure that will come up in the comments in just a moment. But I think this episode, I'm anticipating that Matt and I are back to being willing to call each other brother once again. <laughs> Yes. So speaking of those comments, Matt, any thoughts about our last episode, which was about Regine? Yes, we had a few comments. I just wanted to bring up one from uh, Karen Collette. She said, I agree with the brother that gave the show a D, but I'm not sure which one that is. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. That's me. That's, that's Sean. That's Sean. Yes. <laughs> Another one from eBoss. Kind of agrees with you on this one. Again, another cog in the machine episode for sure. Like the city of the water concept, the street set looks semi-lively. I always like the recurring guest starring furniture set pieces. <laughs> Strangely, this grounds connects the make-believe to real life for me, sort of the Uncanny Valley vibe that pulls me in. As for this episode, it was rather bland and adding little to the overall adventure. Getting that spy on the ship and letting her stay longer may have reinforced the reason why they put her on the ship the way they did using her mental abilities to really harm the crew's spirit. Mm -hmm. Overall, both you guys nailed this one on the head. You all have a good one. I thought that was actually a really good point. It would have been interesting if they had left her on the ship for several episodes yeah. and had her revealed and pulled off. That would have been a far more interesting. <laughs> it would have been far more interesting to see. And as you know, Eboss and now you are pointing out, I really love the idea of a character coming on a growing relationship with Archer, potentially a subtle undermining of through some sort of ability to just kind of drain the crew of morale, which is something yeah. that the episode we're going to talk about today is addressing the fact that the yes. crew is exhausted. So it's, it's right within the vein of what they would have been talking about, but they chose to do a standalone episode, which as you know, everybody who's been our regular listener knows Matt was okay with, I was not so hot about missed opportunity. Maybe. Yeah. And the last comment was from Pilgo 69, which said, I have one change that you both could agree with that resolves your points. Have Reed be the only target of her advances. He already has shown his problems leading with the wrong head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> his hero complex would have put the ship in danger. It would have been a great message to the viewers too. Also, her introduction could have just been trying to escape a pursuer instead of the slave market and the story could have been the same. And this last comment I wanted to bring up during our show, but didn't get a chance. Mm -hmm. Your discussion makes me wonder how you guys handle the Orions when we get there. Mm. That kind of ties to what I was saying to you. 
this is kind of like par for the course for this section of the galaxy. It's this wild west, you know, slavery's a thing, you know, mm-hmm. prostitution's a thing. It's like that's the Orion Syndicate through the entire Star Trek series, even in the new shows. Like even the, even the new shows that we're watching, it's it's still very much a part of it. Mm-hmm. So where you had a problem with the whole, um, I don't know what the right way to put it is, the, the prostitution story and her using her feminine wiles mm-hmm. to get what she wanted that's like par for the course for star trek like throughout every show even the new ones right i the way i'm going to phrase this is going to sound weird i had no problem with the prostitution <laughs> yeah yeah no i, I know had, your problem was what she done the ship once she's on the ship i yes. it's the yes. use of the character where yes. it for me it was about the use of the character being diluted down to there's one thing about her there's just one thing about her and it right. was that it was just the sexuality component. That was my issue. The idea of the slavery, the prostitution, the sex work as a part of Star Trek lore, of there being parts of the galaxy where people are not used or given liberties that are free mm-hmm. and fair, uh, mistreatment, all of that is, like you said, it's part for the course in Star Trek. And it's an important part of it because if you don't have, if you have nothing to push off against, then yep. your morality is never tested and your mora- yep. and these are ultimately the best track for me is the morality play. The idea of somebody standing there and saying in any other circumstance, I would know what I'm doing is right. Why does it feel wrong right now? That for me is what star Trek is so great at. So but that's what, that's what I yeah. thought was nice about his comment of what if they had just made it about Reed because he's such a horn dog. Yeah. He doesn't think things through clearly. And they've established this numerous times before she could have seen him as the weak link and she could have gone after him deliberately because he was the weak link. Yeah. And that could have been actually part of a growth story for him of like, Oh man, (laughs) it could have been part of a growth story and it could have been an indication of the more Machiavellian, uh, chest playing the chest player nature of what she's supposed to be. Exactly. If she's going to be a spy, she has to be three steps ahead of everybody. So she would be playing different angles, a romantic angle with one character, a sort of, uh, friend partner to another character working her way into different people's lives in different ways, all the while undermining relationships. You know, it would have been, it could have been, uh, I think a lot more gripping than what yeah. was presented. I agree with you on that. So thank you everybody for those comments. As usual, uh, the comments are a huge component of what we are trying to do here. And we love reading the comments. We love hearing from you guys. You can reach out through the comment section on YouTube. You can reach out directly through the contact information in the podcast description. But before we move on, I'm waiting for that noise to stop. It's the read alert, as everybody will recognize. And what that means is it's time for Matt to jump in with the Wikipedia description. And Matt, I think you're going to be, I won't say pleased. Happy? I won't say pleased, <laughs> but I will say, I think you'll be surprised at this one. Okay. We'll see. Impulse is the 57th episode of the American science fiction television series, Star Trek Enterprise, the fifth episode of season three. The episode was written by the, by story editor Jonathan Fernandez from a story by Fernandez and Terry Metalis. It first aired uh, October 8th, 2003 on the UPN network in the United States. The episode was described by Paramount Pictures as a <laughs> as close to a horror show as Star Trek gets. 
Set in the 22nd century, the series follows the adventures of the first Starfleet Starship Enterprise Registration NX-01. In this episode, while investigating the Delphic Expanse for a Zindi superweapon, the Enterprise responds to the distress call of a Vulcan ship. I will say that is far better than normal. <laughs> I will not say it's good, but it's say far it. better than normal. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that was my feeling as well. So as you just mentioned, this one was by Jonathan Fernandez as writer from a story with both Jonathan Fernandez and Terry Metalis. It was directed by David Livingston. And at this point, I'd like to jump forward to some information that I thought was interesting about David Livingston's directorial history with Star Trek. He directed a total of 62 episodes overall, including 15 episodes of Enterprise. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last time that we see his work. And overall, both Matt and I have commented about his work before. He clearly knows what he's doing. You don't Mm -hmm. get to direct 62 episodes of a large franchise by mistake like this no. guy's still here what he just directed a 61st episode i ah, gave him one more and then we kick him out no that's not how it happens so <laughs> this is i think an episode that really really benefited from a experienced hand on the helm mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this one has it has a number of moving parts it has storylines that on one level look like they are not intricately interwoven, but ultimately they do have that kind of synergy that you want to see from your a plot and your B plot. You really want to have that moment of like, Oh, now it's all coming together in this really nice way. And the pacing of this had to be very tight because there's a lot happening. You can't spend a lot of downtime, but you still want to have those moments where people get an opportunity to really demonstrate internal conflict and internal growth. And when you stop and think about all the things that happened in this episode, it's a lot. Mr. Livingston did quite, quite a good job of getting through all of that. So as was mentioned, this episode aired on October 8th, 2003. And what was the world like at the time that it aired? Well, Matt, you finally answered the musical question. The black eyed peas were asking for, many a week you found out where the love was and then you started to shake your tail, tail feather with Nellie P Diddy and Murphy Lee. I sure did. You did that mm. for anybody who's not watching this on YouTube, the, the grin on his face is worth <laughs> a thousand words <laughs> and in movie theaters. Well, a little film called school of rock premiered and earned $19 million. It would go on to earn about 130 million. And of course, School of Rock is the comedy directed by Richard Linkletter, and it stars Jack Black, Joan Cusack, Mike White, and Sarah Silverman. And its storyline, I don't even know that I need to share this with anybody, but here you go. Jack Black plays a guy who basically is trying to con a school by filling in as a teacher in a music class, but he connects with the kids. He teaches them something about life. It's basically an upbeat Dead Poet Society. Yes, it is. And it's gone on to have a Broadway show based on it. It's it's fun. It's a fun movie. It's a fun movie. And it's it's worth checking out. It is not at this time streaming anywhere, but it is available for purchase and rent. And on television on October 8th, 2003, what were we watching? Well, there were about four million of us watching Star Trek Enterprise. Unfortunately, there were 10 million of us watching My Wife and Kids. And it's all relative. 
quick, Matt, tell me what It's All Relative is about. I have no idea. <laughs> Meanwhile, on CBS, people were watching 60 Minutes 2, watching stories about American hostages being held in Colombia. On Fox, there was a baseball game. Two little teams called the Red Sox and the Yankees were playing each other. And on NBC, Ed was earning about 8 million viewers. And on the WB, Smallville was earning 6.7 million, which means that for the week, Enterprise was the low show on the totem pole. But it's holding steady. It's holding pretty steady. It had its core audience. It never grew past that core audience. I think that's the lesson yeah. we're seeing week after week after week. And in the news, well, I thought this was an interesting story from the New York Times, October 8th, by Dennis Overby, the new model of the universe. It's shaped like a soccer ball. In an unusual logjam of contradictory claims, a revolutionary new model of the universe as a soccer ball arrives on astronomers' desks on Thursday morning at least slightly deflated. In a paper being published in the journal Nature, Dr. Jeffrey Weeks, an independent mathematician in Canton, New York, and his colleagues suggest, based on analysis of maps of the Big Bang, that space is a kind of 12-sided hall of mirrors in which the illusion of infinity is created by looking out and seeing multiple copies of the same stars. If that model is correct, Dr. Weeks said, it would rule out a popular theory of the Big Bang that asserts that our own observable universe is just a bubble among others in a realm of vastly larger extent. It means we can just about see the whole universe now, Dr. Weeks said. The article went on from there to explain how this is a theory that even as it was being presented was already being debated yeah. and argued with some arguing that the entire paper included evidence of its own theory not being true that it depended yeah. upon the mathematics and the mathematics didn't work and i thought it was an interesting to follow up on that with this article from quantum magazine in 2019 which was writing about stephen hawking and hawking was talking about his no boundary proposal in which hawking argued that there was effectively no big bang that the universe had always existed. The no boundary proposal, which Hawking and his frequent collaborator, James Hartle fully formulated in a 1990, 1983 paper envisions the cosmos having the shape of a shuttlecock, just as a shuttlecock has a diameter of zero at its bottommost point, And then gradually widens on the way up the universe, according to the no boundary proposal, smoothly expanded from a point of zero size. Hartle and Hawking derived a formula describing the whole shuttlecock, the so-called wave function of the universe that encompasses the entire past, present, and future at once, making moot all contemplation of seeds of creation, a creator, or any transition from a time before. Asking what came before the Big Bang is meaningless, according to the No Boundary proposal, because there is no notion of time available to refer to, Hawking said in another lecture in 2016. It would be like asking what lies south of the South Pole. <laughs> I just love this. Yeah. The very shape and nature of the universe being so debatable. Yeah. And I think that it, for me, it captured my eye and it captured my imagination because I think it ties in nicely with what Enterprise is trying to do at this point. Introduce a section of space where the rules 
that we've all come to understand within Star Trek simply don't apply. Yep. And not with a lot of scientific techno babble to explain it and dismiss it very early on. Yep. Oh, these waves of distortion, they're caused by a blah, blah, blah. And then everybody just goes along their merry way. This was not a problem that was presented. I can imagine any number of times where there's been an episode of say next generation where something happens. And by the end of the episode, they're like, but now that we know what it looks like, we figured out how to set up our sensors and we won't have that problem again. Yep. They're not doing that here. They are presenting a problem with which the characters are effectively have to massively reshape their understanding of what's going on around them. And I yep. thought it was a, a neat set of articles that kind of pointed out that happening in real life, that these theories, there's another theory that was also referred to by Hawking. Hawking's theory basically uh, dismissed the soccer ball and another model, which was the caterpillar theory, which was mm -hmm. a universe shaped like a caterpillar. And by the mathematics that were at work, the quantum mathematics, basically those models undo themselves. So the mysteries of the universe are being debated right now and are ultimately on some level likely unknowable, but that doesn't stop yes. people from trying to figure them out. And yep. here in the Star Trek Enterprise season three, they're throwing that level of question mark into their storytelling. And it's part of our conversation between Matt and me and all of your comments about how effective that is. So that brings us all very nicely. See what I did there? I see what you did there. It like brings us very nicely <laughs> to today's episode that we're discussing, which is impulse and just kind of big picture, Matt. What did you think? Okay, let me just say the first note I wrote to myself was night of the living Vulcan. Yeah, <laughs> this is, this is just a straight up zombie movie and it's exceptional. I loved this episode. I was gripped from the beginning to the end. The op the cold open of this was probably one of the shortest cold openings they've ever had on this series. And it was, uh, okay, you got me as soon as it starts. It was, I was in from the very first moment all the way through. It was in my opinion, expertly crafted because there was so much that happens in this. It was very plot oriented, but it didn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. it you felt very, I felt very immersed through the entire thing. There was enough character development to keep me interested. Just overall, I was just very pleased how they, had some growth with to Paul and the captain. I don't know if we just want to jump right to the spoilers at the end of the show. You can talk but, about, I think what you can talk yeah. about whatever you need to. Yeah. Like there's over a hundred Vulcans on the ship that are basically the living dead. Yeah. But what was interesting to me about the zombies on this was they're not stupid, mindless drones. They're intelligent Vulcans that just clearly have no like filter yeah. and they're just mad. So they are, constantly shifting the dynamics of the situation because they're they're basically like it's like a chess game they're cornering the crew that are trapped on the ship with them in very intelligent ways yeah. of like anticipating what they're doing and it's terrifying because here's these very intelligent vulcans that are like rabid dogs coming after you and it was the stakes were incredibly high um the the red shirts of star trek which on enterprise are the marines mm-hmm I really like what they did with the Marine here. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't have a whole lot, 
but I was I was concerned about him. Yeah. I couldn't remember. Does he die or not? Yeah. I couldn't actually remember. And it was like I was actually concerned, like when he got hurt, he's bleeding out and all this stuff is happening. And yet he's still pushing forward like a Marine. Yeah. It was like it was like there was so much in this episode that just had me going. And because I couldn't remember who died, who didn't die, who got through, who didn't get hurt, it it it, it reminded me of the first time I watched the episode of mm-hmm. like I was just in it. And so this hasn't this hasn't happened a lot to me in watching Star Trek because I've seen these so many times. But this was just like a fun brush of uh, like fresh air, just a breath of fresh air for me watching this episode. I just had a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it did a lot of very very smart things. And I I I think I've said before in this podcast, I'm not a big fan of the opener, which then is followed by 24 hours earlier. Like I'm not a big fan of that. If you're going to do that, you have to make it work and it has to make sense. And it ultimately has to do a very tricky thing, which is by the time you catch up in the main story to what you used as your opener, you Mm -hmm. have to have done a good job of making me forget that that was the opener. Uh And it's very hard to do that. And this did it beautifully. And I think it Mm -hmm. did it as you pointed out, because it was so brief, it did not Mm -hmm. feel like, well, if this is such an important moment, very often what happens in those kind of teaser openings is this, if this is such an important moment to start the story with, why are you not just continuing from this moment? Mm -hmm. But what they managed to do with that opening of to Paul clearly out of her mind, they limited it by making it so short. It was just, A to Paul, who's out of her mind. That's all we know. Yep. And we know something bad has happened. She is like the others. So that's all you need to know in that moment. And it works really, really well. Getting back then to the previous day, I think <clears throat> this sets up, it is like this episode pulled not only from Night of the Living Dead, The Walking Dead, 28 days later. It also pulls from Nightmare on Elm Street, it oh, yeah. pulls from yep. aliens. It's yep. it's pulling very smartly from all these different things to fit into like, it's almost as if they said, well, we want to do horror. What does Star Trek have that offers us different lanes into different types of horror? Because you are in a space faring show with space weapons and now space Marines. So an alien story makes sense. You're also dealing with the psychology of the people. So a nightmare on Elm street makes sense. And you're in an expansive space where things are going wrong and things are breaking down and there's something present that causes a problem for this one particular species. And it's that suddenly zombie story makes sense. And they were, they did a beautiful job of saying like, well, we can make all of those work together in a way that if you were to spitball it and say to me, what would you think if we tried to say, we're going to tell you a, three different horror genre story in star Trek in one episode, I would be like, you are biting off way too much. Just make three separate episodes, but they did it and it works. They even have so much nice stuff that is pushing forward the storyline of being in the expanse because they've now established that they need Trillium D and they've found what could be a huge beneficial repository of it for themselves in a horrifying asteroid field in a hor- in a asteroid <laughs> field that the graphics of that the you special effects predict. of that i thought yeah. were magnificent because you see these asteroids literally winking in Change and out direction. of 
space (laughs) so that they're going through what might be little mini wormholes. And so there's no direction to anything. And I thought that was magnificent. And it's, it actually reminded me of another movie, which was event horizon. The idea of you're going to a place and the place is the problem, not just like it's, it's the proximity to this thing. And the fact that the Trillium D ends up being toxic to the Vulcans and it causes this mental breakdown. Their, their facility to be fully cognitively present gets broken down so that they revert to, as Paul says, we were a paranoid and violent species. And it's that paranoia and violence that's on display in, as Matt pointed out, they don't become stupid, but their paranoia is driving their decision-making. And T'Pol begins to exhibit that more and more. The episode writing does a masterful job of a drip, 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 drip. If she's on a scale of zero being normal and 10 being full blown paranoia outbreak, as the episode goes, you can see, well, now she's at a one, she's at a two, she's at a three, she's getting worse. It's every time that you have a conversation with, with her, Archer is the constant that is holding her steady for most of the episode. So you get beautiful relationship storytelling in this, the, the, the demonstration of her with Archer, her with trip. When trip suggests they're going to do a movie night trip, it's suggesting a movie night because the crew is so exhausted and we need to do something for morale. And he is the only one on the crew that can say that to the captain because he's the only one that both he and the captain know between the two of us, I'm the angrier one. Mm -hmm. Like trip has that sister that he lost. So even that is a beautiful, masterful touch in this episode to say trip is looking at all of this but he's got one eye on the crew and he's saying like, we're not doing great. Let's yeah. do something to make ourselves feel better. So even that little bit of character relationship discussion was good is beautiful. It's really, this episode feels like it's so much more than how long is it? 42 minutes, 44 minutes. It feels like it's, it feels like it's longer than that in a good way. It feels like it's longer than that in a magnificent way. It feels like yeah. those, those great episodes where you can't believe that you have only been sitting there for only 40 minutes and it so, told so much of a story. So can I, can I, when you brought up how to Paul's escalation from one to two to three to four, that was one of my favorite parts of this episode. Yeah. And it goes down to the really good directing and really good acting. Yeah. Blaylock does a great Jolene job. Blaylock is a really good actress in this show. And I think it's, she's presented as the sex symbol but she is a way more than that. She is an exceptional actress in, in her roles to Paul and she escalates it beautifully. And it probably was also the uh, directing that helped her achieve that performance. Mm -hmm. And the other thing about this episode that really stood out to me was sometimes in Star Trek, probably for budgetary reasons, they tend to keep things confined and small. And even when there's an action episode, their action sequences are kind of small scale. Um, on small sets and things like that. This episode felt bigger and grander to me yeah. than a typical episode. And like an action film, it had a few se- had a few set pieces for action sequences that were just like, yeah, give me more. And one of those that really stood out to me was the jumping sequence where yeah. the, the shot that was going down to the ship, you could see a hole was just burst through the ship and they had to jump over it. That entire sequence was 
nail biting. Yeah. And part of the reason for that was I couldn't remember if the Marine died or not. Yeah. And in that sequence with, with, with Reed basically yelling at him, you get across. He, he wanted to be the last one across, yeah. but Reed forces him to go cause he's injured and halfway across a zombie grabs his leg and he starts teetering. And I'm like, Oh God, is this, yeah, this he is where he dies? And he, yeah. and he manages to kick the guy off and then leap to safety. And I was like, yes. Yeah. My, I was like arms in the air. Like this is fantastic. It was, that set piece of that sequence was just so masterfully done and read knocking the uh, I beam yeah. like off so they can't follow them and all the Vulcans like looking at him like, no, yeah. because they are all angry because now they can't get to him. And then they start leaping, trying to get across, just falling to their deaths because yeah. they're just still trying to get at them. All of that was so beautifully zombie movie, gigantic movie set piece. It just felt so good. And it's like, I wish we had more of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it shows they can do it. They, they showed they can do it. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. The Corporal Hawkins is the name of the, yes. the Marine in this one. And he's played by Sean <laughs> McGowan and, and he did a great job with it too. Very There's good a, job. I mean, even like every line of dialogue, literally this is this is an episode where every line of dialogue has a purpose and it's done well it and that comes down to not only good writing but good directing with like really making everything feel purposeful it's there is a beautiful moment where they're marching through they've just incorporated they've just uh experienced the first attack by vulcans and the first attack is scary enough because you end up with like there's two over there and then there's two more down this hall and oh my god here come two more now they're going to march their way through the ship. They're trying to figure out where they're going to go and how they're going to get there. And Corporal Hawkins switches his gun to kill. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to Paul takes offense at this. And she reminds him, like, we are on a rescue mission. This, that is not an appropriate response. You should not do that. I am telling <laughs> you not to. He doesn't want to listen to her. The captain has to say something. Later on, he apologizes in a moment yes. where it's calmer. He says, you were right. I'm sorry I did that. It won't happen again. And I was just like, come on, Corporal Hawkins. This is like, yeah. suddenly yeah. I'm totally team Hawkins. Like, here's a guy yes. who in this yes. one episode, and we have only seen him up to this point. And I'm like, this guy has demonstrated a willingness to learn, a willingness to accept his mistakes, to apologize for his error. Yeah. Come on. This is starting to feel like, oh, my God, is this a new character? And well, when, funny. and then they break their own, <laughs> when you, when you have a series that is, that has a rule as well known as Star Trek, which is the red shirt always dies. Yeah. When Marines you have that shirt. role and you break your own cliche, it, it does something to the audience that really works. It really works to grip the audience and capture them by surprise. Yeah. I was with you. I was just like, well, Corbin Hawkins is going to die. Well, well, when you said, and then you when said, you get that scene where he apologizes, I was like, now I like him. So now I really know he's going to die. That's, that's what I was about to say. Once he, that scene is perfect for making everybody team Hawkins. Yeah. It was like it was a brilliant move, which is why I was like, oh, please don't kill him. And then he's teetering on the high beam. It's like, I feel that way yeah. because they had that scene where he's like, I'm really sorry I did bad. When that scene happened where he turned his gun to kill, my wife wasn't watching the episode with me, but she was in the room and she was turned to me and went, Oh, so he's the Hudson of this episode yeah. from the movie Aliens, where they're going to come in here, they're going to kill us. Yeah. It's like at that moment, he's very panicky. He's yeah. like, uh, every man for himself, let's kill him. Yeah. Like, and it was like, I, I really liked how they were playing with that of having you kind of like, oh, oh, Hawkins, don't be doing that. And yeah. then later he redeems himself, which makes you, it makes him endearing to you. You, you get that connection of, 
he can grow and you just oh, i loved it yeah i loved it yeah I, I'm, I'm having trouble finding the words because i just had so much fun with this episode yeah i also think that big picture it's fascinating that the expanse at this point they've pointed out a couple of things that <laughs> are just in space that when the crew is exposed to them everybody is affected by them except the mm -hmm. vulcan and now they've found the thing that affects just the vulcan and not mm -hmm. the rest of the crew so they're setting up this real like oh great this part of space is gonna always be dangerous to somebody like they're yep. like setting it up as like there's just environmental impact across the board that is going to be a problem and the trillium d storyline which is the b storyline in this trip sees an opportunity here and he's like this thing is this field of asteroids is full of trillium d maybe we can get a hold of enough to actually protect our ship and so he goes on his little Easter egg hunt of how do I get it? And they have a great scene. I mean, literally every scene feels like it's great. It's well done. Mm -hmm. Him at the transporter, him and Mayweather mm -hmm. trying to just literally transport bits of asteroid aboard. And as they're doing it, they can't get a firm enough lock and they end up, first of all, breaking the transporter. Second of all, breaking it in a way that made me think, boy, they're being very casual about what just happened. Bits like of asteroid are literally fused into the wall, ceiling, and <laughs> the floor. The crew is going to, yeah, he, he makes a joke out of it. Yeah, the, the repair crew is going <laughs> to love this, but it's like the very casual response that I was just like, well, that's a pretty <laughs> catastrophic problem that just, yeah. just happened. Their next step is to actually fly out to the asteroids. And again, this is an episode where we've seen episodes recently with long guest star lists and it's clear that they view those as information heavy. Like we have all these guest mm -hmm. stars. So there's going to be a lot of talking. There's going to be a lot of pushing forward of the story in this way. This one only has one guest star. It's Sean McGowan who plays Corporal Hawkins. They spend a lot of time with special effects on a mm -hmm. B storyline. And mm -hmm. the main storyline is taking place clearly on a soundstage Mm -hmm. with a hallway i didn't bother trying to figure it out i didn't like go scene to scene to see the scooby-doo of it all but you know they had one hallway and yeah, they, they reused it and they shot it from different angles because there's they go down like two of the crew members go down one hallway and find a thing and two other crew members go down a different hallway you know it's the same hallway but it doesn't matter because they do enough with camera angle and lighting and changing some of the like a fallen beam or a hanging cord, they do enough mm -hmm. changing of that that you can kind of ignore. Like, yeah, I get what they're getting to. It doesn't have to look perfect in order to be a different place. But meanwhile, the money is being spent on a special effects budget for two guys who are basically like, let's go find some rocks. Yep. And they fly into the asteroid field and the sequences of flying through the asteroid field are harrowing. They're, yeah. They're flying around asteroids that are coming literally from every direction and can at any moment change direction change. Yep. to land on one of them. And again, in I'm going to keep going back to every line of dialogue serves a purpose. When they land on the asteroid, as they're coming in, you get trip feeding data to Mayweather saying like you're off on this direction you've you got to match the angle he's saying all this stuff Mayweather's like got it understood like he's flying beautifully in a harrowing situation and then they crash land on 
the asteroid. And Mayweather's response is, I hope you don't tell anybody about that landing. I loved, loved, loved Tripp's response. Are you kidding? I'm going to recommend they give you a medal. Like the idea that this is the scenario that they're in, where they are in circumstances where Tripp's response to that rough landing is, I can't believe you did it. Yeah. And just like, I mean, and he says, I'm going to recommend they give you a medal. He's his commanding officer. He likely does write up a report that recommends he be given a commendation for his ability to do what he did. So they are in the B storyline, but they're doing stuff which is equally remarkable. If the entire episode had only been about flying through that asteroid field, that's an episode. That and the fact alone that they're on the surface episode. of this asteroid that any moment, another asteroid could come crashing down on them at any moment. Yes. It's like there's this looming danger every moment they're on that asteroid. And that, in is fact, really is what happens. A asteroid yep. changes direction. There is a massive collision looming. They have to get away. They barely do. And their shuttle craft is severely damaged. They get back. They're able to get back on one thruster. They make the, the comment as they're flying back to the Enterprise, get the shuttle bay crew prepared for a rough landing so they've got some sort of emergency response team on hand for the shuttlecraft which just barely makes it back at this point this is when they find out that archer and the away team is in danger and they need the second shuttle to go get them so Mm -hmm. now there's the clock now becomes an issue there's a delay of a couple of hours t'pol is losing control the vulcans are trying to kill them this part of space is chaotic at best. There's so much stuff. There's so many moving parts to the story and Livingston and the actors and the writers, they pull it off. It's a perfect episode. As far as I'm concerned, we haven't had a lot of these in our discussions around this series, but this episode for me is an absolute solid a plus. It's just yeah, like, this is-, this is one that you could show to somebody who'd never seen the show before and, they and will say, enjoy it. I think you'd enjoy this because it's just a great, scary spaceship sci-fi story. And somebody could watch this and be like, oh, yeah, I don't need to know the series. I don't need to know all the details. They give enough of it. And then, Matt, I'd like to invite you to talk about the ending ending. Oh, that's so heartbreaking, man. The <laughs> This is where it does feel a little bit like Nightmare on Elm Street you know, Freddy Cougar-esque because it basically ends with a dream sequence, a nightmare sequence of T'Pol. So it, it looks like the episode's over with her going to movie night and basically shaming Phlox and, uh, and Trip for talking too loudly during the movie, which I thought was great because yeah, it's like, absolutely. oh, this feels very believable. And then it starts to get a little weird and you start to realize, oh no, this is not a real thing that's happening. And it turns into this just horrifying nightmare sequence of T'Pol feeling like she's losing control again and when she wakes up it's just her basically in a cold sweat you know just like terrified because she's clearly going to have a long recovery yeah for what's happened to her and she's definitely not out of danger like this is something that's going to be looming over her yeah for the rest of the season and on top of that i did like how the captain is not going to use the Trillium D yeah. that Trip found because he doesn't want to put her in danger. They have that sequence so where gonna, he suggests, yeah. <laughs> she suggests, leave me on the next planet. Yes. Like I will just be able to survive on a habitable planet. And he's like, no, that's not going to happen. And she's like, she goes back to the, the Vulcan precept of the value of the one doesn't outweigh the value of the many. Correct. And he's like, not in this case, I get to make that call. Yep. 
So there's there's this wonderful bond. Yeah. The bond between the two of them, it's showing where that is. It shows where the captain's mindset is. You know, like he's going to protect every member of his crew as best he can. And he thinks that this is the best path forward. Um, it's I just loved it. Yeah. Like I, I just want to, we've, we bagged on season two a lot. And yeah. we were critical of season one, but we really bagged on season two. And we kept joking around of, let's wait till season three. That's where it gets good. Yeah. This this season, this is this episode is a prime example of why I was so excited to get to season three. Yeah. Because there are episodes like this one. They're not every week, but there are these episodes that start to happen in the show now, which yeah. are like exceptional. And this is where the show hits its stride. And yeah. you start to get these A plus episodes that you could watch out of sequence, show them to somebody who doesn't know what the show is, and they're going to have a blast watching it. Yeah. This is definitely one of those episodes. Yeah. We live in an era with prestige television and the way the television industry has changed, where we end up with longer gaps between seasons, shorter mm -hmm. seasons overall, a different approach to storytelling. Like, what is a story arc in an episode? Was it what is a story arc in a season? Even a show that shows up like Strange New Worlds and says, We're going back to the old original series episodic format. It has a thread, it has an ongoing, mm -hmm. like, seasonal storyline it isn't the in the foreground the way that it is in shows like discovery perhaps but it's still there so it's a different take on the way shows are produced than they used to be and enterprise i think really struggles and suffered from the fact that they were trying to do as many episodes per season as they were when you look at the way television manages itself in a lot of cases now it's well you're going to have eight episodes like the series obi-wan you get like you've got this many episodes for obi-wan they're each going to be a movie they're each going to tell a clear story but they're also going to be a part of each other they're all going to have to knock it out of the park to the same degree and not every show is going to be as great as every other show but that is the approach in production i think when you have eight, each of the eight has to be great. I think that for me, when I look at shows that have this many episodes, 24 episodes, 26 episodes per season, eight would still be a good number. If eight mm -hmm. episodes knock it out of the park, that's enough of a percentage for me. Like if every third episode feels like, whoo, that was a good one. That keeps me coming back. That keeps me happy. Yep. And that was my main problem with season two. It felt like it was a long dry spell of not great. We weren't going three episodes and then hitting a great episode. We were going four or five and then it was not a home run. It was like maybe a double yeah, as opposed exactly. to knocking out of the park. So it was like, it really started to wear on you as a viewer to say like, okay, what are they doing? Do they know what they're trying to do? Do they know? Like I, I get a sense that they feel like they're going somewhere, but are they going to be able to? And season three is where it hits that stride again of like, okay, not every single one's going to be an A, but when it's an A, it's an A. And yeah. this for me was an A. I really, really enjoyed this episode. And as we just said, this felt to me like if I was showing this to somebody who didn't know the show, I would very comfortably mm -hmm. pick this as an episode to show. I would be like, let's start with this one. So, Listeners, as you could no doubt tell by now, Matt and I are fully on board with 
impulse. But what did you all think about it? Please let us know. You can reach out through the contact information in the podcast description or on YouTube. You can just scroll beneath the image of our smiling faces and leave a comment there. Matt, before we sign off, do you have anything you want to talk to the listeners about for your other channels? Yeah, on Undecided, I have a video that should be out by the time this comes out about exploring the solar panel breakthroughs and the state of the solar panel market in 2022. There's been a lot of interesting things happening. And so I just put together a video that kind of encapsulates everything in one in one place. As for me, you can check out my website, seanferrell.com. You can find out information about my books there. Or you can go to Amazon, or you can go to Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. All of those are ways to find my books. And I've also got some news that I have been sitting on for a while. Yeah. And yes, it is that I have recently, I have uh, can finally publicly announce that I have a book that will be coming out next year. It's going to be coming from a publisher named Pixel and Inc. And it is a middle grade book. So if you know anybody in your life who's maybe 10, 11, 12, maybe 13 or 14, who likes adventure stories that involve robots and smugglers and pirates and bad things happening to good people, keep an eye out for the Sinister Secrets of Singe that will be coming out in 2023. And it's part of a series. The second book will be coming out in 2024. And I'm working on that second book now. I just finished revisions on the first book and I am more than excited to share this with readers in the future. I will keep everybody apprised of when it starts to be available for pre-order and when it's coming out and may even be able to share some stuff like maybe some cover art in the future. So check that out. It's a cool story. It's a very cool story. (laughs) And don't forget, if you'd like to support the show, you can leave a review on Apple, on Google, on Spotify, wherever it is you found this podcast, go back there and leave a review. You can also tell your friends about us. That of course is great. We love word of mouth. And if you'd like to directly support us, you can go to trekintime.show, click on the become a supporter button that allows you to do two things. It allows you to throw quarters at our head, which as much fun as that sounds for you, it's equally painful for us. It also makes you a cadet. And by being a cadet, you will automatically start getting a feed of our second show out of time in which we talk about anything and everything else other than these episodes of the series in continuity. So we talk about everything from maybe other Star Trek programs, other Star Wars, other Marvel, other whatever. So we hope you'll consider supporting us directly and start getting that feed. We're having a lot of fun with that one. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We will talk to you next time. 